The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 6th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I don't know. No one has let me know. I don't know if we're late to the party, but over the last couple of months, my family has enjoyed to greater and lesser degrees, depending upon who you ask. Uh, Disney's latest Descendants series. Um, some of you, that's like 2015, so old. For us, it's still new. Uh, but frankly, I, I love the concept. I was caught up by the concept. The whole idea of following the story arc of the heroines and the heroes of the Disney stories through their children and the villains as well and watching their lives work themselves out. And like every great Disney story that you grew up with, there's suffering and hardship and injustice and kingdoms in conflict and wayward children doing things you wouldn't expect. But in the end, I won't spoil it. It ends probably as you would expect. And there's a, a tidy moral lesson throughout all the stories for us and how we behave. But the more we enjoyed it over the last couple of months and the more I considered what we're embarking on now as we begin our journey through the book of Samuel the more I had to consider that if we're really honest with ourselves, and I won't make you raise your hands, but if we're really honest with ourselves, many of us tend to approach the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible, the same way we approach a Disney story. As we begin the book of Samuel, we're, we're going to find kingdoms in conflict. We're going to find stories of injustice. We're going to find stories of suffering. We're going to find stories of wayward children, good where we would expect evil, evil where we would expect good. You're going to find stories of a king consulting a witch for direction. But it's no once upon a time fairy tale. Unlike any Disney story you grew up, these are real people in real places. There's no tidy moral lesson at the end. The book of Samuel is a chronicling of God's very real people living in the very real places where they found themselves. But more specifically, it's going to chronicle the story of a sovereign and good God acting in a broken world for his glory and the good of his people. And so this morning, we're going to begin just walking through it together. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to what your Bible will say first, as 1 Samuel but I'll often refer to as the book of Samuel because while you're getting there, I'll kind of let you in on a secret. It was one story. The books in your Bible of First and Second Samuel historically are one story. So the Hebrew alphabet is very compact. You can get a lot in a little space. But when the Bible would be translated later on into Greek and into Latin, their alphabets were not the same. So when they would translate the book of Samuel into Greek and Latin, it would take up two scrolls. So historically, as the Bible was put together, you would get the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. But they're actually one book, which is why I love the, the, first, the Samuel journals we have out there. If you don't have one, grab one. It puts 1st and 2nd Samuel together as one book in, in one story. And so we're going to keep an eye as we go through this towards the one story being told throughout both of these books that are in your Bible. So if you've got it open, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to jump right in. And rather than do a week of introduction, kind of a flyover over the whole story, I'm just going to take a couple of moments throughout the first few weeks to kind of give context and the broader picture of what's going on and pull out some things that the writer of the book of Samuel put in there that those who would have read it and heard it, it would have given them the context for understanding what's going on. So we're going to try to do it that way. If you've got it open, 
Let's jump right in. Sake of time. First Samuel chapter one, verse one. There was a certain man of Ramah of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkinah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephetite. So right away, you're, you're cued in that this is not the product of make-believe. This isn't once upon a time Disneyland stories. This is a very real man in a very particular place with four generations of history recorded behind him. And we find out where he's actually from. He's from Ramah in the region of Ephraim. And for the sake of time, we won't get into it. But if you do some digging about this man and his family throughout the Old Testament and the chronicles of Israel's history in First and Second Chronicles and in Samuel later in the story, you'll find out that this man, Elkina, comes from the tribe of Levi. He has a priestly lineage. In fact, back in Numbers, we find out the people that he come, comes from were charged with being gatekeepers in the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant. Later in the story, not to jump too far ahead, but during the days of David's kingship, this man, Elkina's grandson, is going to be noted in the history of Israel as the singer, which means basically the worship director. His lineage would most likely be made up of those who we know as the sons of Korah, who wrote some of the Psalms we looked at this summer. So this man, Elkina, we know a little bit about him from the larger story. We know where he's from, the people he's from. We know where he lives and the Hebrew storytellers, they were brilliant writers. They're going to lay all kinds of nuggets of information in little places. They're going to help give you pictures of how things tie together. And so he starts this story in a very specific way that would have given a lot of context to those who would have read it or who would have heard it. When he says there was a certain man named Elkina, and we know that he has a historical family history of service to the Lord, but he's not actually serving the Lord working at the tabernacle, we have to ask, why? Why is he not doing that if that's the lineage of his family? Well, that's one of the pieces that gives you a bigger picture of the context of the book of Samuel. So that phrase that he starts with, there was a certain man, it's a particular phrase that's used one other time in the Bible. Anybody know where it's used? Judges chapter 13, verse 2. In Judges chapter 13, verse 2, you'll find this. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. If you were with us when we went through the book of Judges, do you remember the story? It was to this man, Manoah, and his wife, who was unable to have children, that God intervened and she had a son. You remember who his son was? Samson. When the writer starts the book of Samuel with this phrase, he's intentionally cluing his reader into the fact that this story is beginning back here in this time known as the period of the Judges. The story of Samuel begins towards the end of the period of the Judges. Those stories overlap. And we know that during the period of the Judges, there was a very dark and broken spiritual and social and civil reality amongst God's people. It was not a high point in the history of God's people. In fact, if you remember the stories, you remember there was a refrain that was said over and over towards the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the story of the helplessness of God's people, the hopelessness of God's people time after time again, giving themselves over into idolatry, God having to step in and rescue them. It was a time of tremendous decay. 
God's people have been set apart by him, chosen to be a blessing to the nations. And in the period of the judges, in the midst of the spiritual and moral decay, they were not producing fruit. They were spiritually barren because of their sin. And this is going to play a big role in understanding this story. Hopeless and helpless and barren God's people were in the time of the judges. And the writer of the book of Samuel begins this story with this phrase. There was a certain man from Ramah, and you're supposed to think about these things. I've heard that before. What happened then? Is that going to happen now? And the writer goes on, this certain man from Ramah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. Depending on how you translate that, it can be favored or grace. And the other was Paniah, which means prolific. Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And like the best of stories, the writer is now not just giving you information, but he is bringing you into the world of frustration, a world of longing, a world of tears. Even in hearing about Hannah at the beginning of the story, your heart is immediately going out to her. Your heart is immediately connecting with her. You're, you're touched to some degree by the pain that she is going through. And the reality of what she's going through is, is a bit bigger than you and I might even understand now. When a woman was barren or unable to have children in Hannah's day, it meant most likely that she would have no one to care for her in her old age. See, in those days, it was your children who would care for you. There was no 401 or social security. It was your kids. And how they cared for you came from how well the family produced. In the hills of Ramah, they were an agrarian people. They were farmers which means the more children you had, the more workers you had on the family farm. The more workers you had on the family farm, the more harvest could be produced. The more harvest that could be produced, the more income could be brought in. They would take care of you then from that income for generations to come. If you didn't have children, you didn't have that expectation. And not only that, in the period of the judges, this time of, in the life of God's people, they were still tribal. And so when there were other peoples in other lands trying to invade that region or that tribe, it was the children who would grow up to provide the protection and security. So for a woman to be able to provide children in that day and that age had a very emotional, familial, but at the same time, very social and very civic reality to it. And those women were highly honored. Great honor came to being able to provide. But for those who were unable to have children, it was a very different experience. For them, there was nothing but tremendous shame. Which is why when you go through the stories of the Bible, you'll often find barrenness in the entire Bible being used as a metaphor for hopelessness. And so as the writer begins this story in the period of the judges, tying it back to what was going on the way he did, he is letting us into something on how we're going to understand the story. Hannah's hopelessness and barrenness and helplessness is going to be a picture, a mirror on a smaller scale of the hopelessness and the helplessness and the barrenness of God's people during a time of great sin in their life. How is God going to respond? How is God going to react? How God deals with Hannah is going to be a picture of how God deals with his people. Will their hopelessness and helplessness be a barrier to his sovereign grace? Well, that's what we're going to see worked out. And so now the writer is going to take us down a little bit into the life of this family. We're going to get into the family a little bit. The writer tells us in the story, if you keep reading, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh, the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, 
where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. He's giving you a little more information here. Things that would have been understood as people read it. Shiloh was about 20 miles north of Ramah. And more specifically, if those of you that are reading in the CBR community Bible reading with us, you're, you're in the book of Joshua now. You're reading these stories. It was Joshua who established Shiloh as the central place of the worship of God's people and had the tabernacle put there. So the feast that God had commanded his people to go and to celebrate with joy, responding to him in worship, would happen there in Shiloh at the tabernacle. So Elkina is taking his family to the place that God had appointed to worship him. And there you find Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. They were priests to the Lord. They were the ones, the anointed ones, who by God's decree mediated between God and his people. But you're going to learn a little bit more about these priests in the next couple of weeks. They are a representation of the spiritual decay in the lives of God's people. So don't go rushing to use these names too quickly for your kids. They sound cool and they sound trendy, but it's not going to work out well for you. But we learn something more about this man, Elkinah. The storyteller is just giving us a picture that's going to paint how we understand the story working itself out. Elkinah brought his family to Shiloh to worship the Lord of hosts. This is the first time in the entire Bible that this name is used for God. It is referencing, it's referring to, it's painting the picture of God's omnipotence and power. He is the commander of all heavenly armies and hosts. He is the one in charge, almighty and all powerful. This is the first time that name shows up. And when we see this man in a season of spiritual decay in the life of God's people in the period of the judges, going to Shiloh in obedience to God's commands to worship the all-powerful one, we know something of this man. At least we know he takes God seriously. At least we know he takes God's words and God's commands seriously. So he takes his family in obedience to offer sacrifices to the Lord as an act of worship. Now the writer's going to take us a little further into their life. He's giving us a picture. He's going to take us a little further. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. It's a very important phrase right there. The phrase is written right there in a particular way to communicate to those who would have read it or would have heard it originally in the language in which it was written to help you see that that phrase, though the Lord had closed her womb, was the way that Elkanah understood what was happening in his family. This isn't the writer going back and translating. This is the writer helping you understand that Elkanah had the assumption, had the perspective that the barrenness that his wife was experiencing was coming from the hand of the Lord of hosts, the almighty, all-powerful one. Elkanah had a right understanding of what Hannah was experiencing, what his family was experiencing, and we see Elkanah responding to Hannah out of that understanding. Because he understood that it was the Lord that had closed her womb, we see Elkanah offering her out of his love towards her more than she rightly deserved. She deserved a portion for herself. She had no children to give portions to. Elkanah had every, every right and every reason in the culture of that day to put out, people would say, a wife who was not able to provide children. But he didn't because he understood this to be a plight that was coming from the hand of the sovereign Lord, he loved her and to continue to treat her out of his love. 
But here's the thing, you're going to see it in the story. Just because you have a right theological understanding of what's going on in a particular situation, it doesn't always mean you're going to respond to it appropriately. We see the opposite occur as the storyteller keeps going. The same truth produces a completely different reaction or a different response in Paniah. The writer says her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. All right, friends, this is, this is real talk right here. Read the story like a human. Day after day, when Hannah would wake up and she would put on her clothes for the day, very metaphorically, but very literally, she would put on the shame and the failure of knowing that she was unable to be or do what the world that she lived in told her she had to be and had to do. She was very aware of what it meant to not be able to have children. Regardless of whether she got a double portion from Elkina or not, she was very aware of what that meant. She lived with it every single day. But you gotta get the right picture in your head. Lest you think she's having family dinner and family breakfast with Paniah and the kids in Elkina. In those days when a man had taken a second wife to be able to have children, they didn't live next to each other. More than likely, Paniah and Hannah were given tents in different parts of Elkina's land. So she lived with that pain every single day because she knew what was expected, but it wasn't like she was eating with him every day. But there was a time during the year when the family would go to Shiloh to worship, that they would go as a unit. And it was during these times when they were all together, the writer brings us into this little story. It was during these times of family travel to the place of hope, to the place of joy, to the tabernacle of the Lord that would become for Hannah in the hands of Paniah an occasion for her pain to be taken to entirely new levels. Dale Ralph Davis is a famous Old Testament scholar. Anything that he, he writes, get your hands on. He tries to imagine what a, a meal during this time, receiving the portions from Elkanah might have sounded like, and I want you to hear it. Davis said, imagine them all sitting and Elkanah handing out the portions and Paniah looking around, saying, no, no, all do, do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard for me to keep track. One of her kids looking at her saying, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Paniah looking back at her, what'd you say? Say it a little bit louder, I didn't hear you. I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, Miss, Miss Hannah, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Mommy, does she want children? Oh yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Hannah, don't you wish you had children too? But Mommy, doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, well, certainly he wants Miss Hannah to have kids, but she just keeps disappointing him. She can't have kids. Well, why not? Well, sweetie, God won't let her. Well, does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Year after year after year, this theological reality of what God was doing in the life of his very particular people right here became a weapon in someone else's hands. And Paniah knew exactly what to do to push her buttons. The writer says she knew exactly what to do during these times of the year to provoke Hannah. And that's a huge word. 
provocation in the Bible. This word is used everywhere else in the Bible to refer to thunderous storms, hurricanes. It's always used to refer to dangerous and destructive weather patterns. The writer is saying this provocation at the hands of Paniah was creating a hurricane in the soul and in the heart of Hannah. This is what her emotions were like. She was so overwhelmed, like a storm going on inside of her. She was so distressed she couldn't even eat. And as you read it like a human, you've got to imagine with that being part of Paniah's intention, when she would see this storm overtake Hannah's soul to the point she couldn't even eat, there had to be a perverse pleasure in it for her. Oh, I see he gave you more than you deserve because he loves you, but mm, year after year, this was Hannah's plight at the hands of Paniah. God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that when you go and observe these feasts at the tabernacle, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all of your understandings, all of your undertakings. It was meant to be a place of hope and joy. But it's here we find Hannah at her most hopeless. And it's here that we have to be careful that we don't distance ourselves too far from the story. You and I live in a world of Paniahs. Every single day, you and I are bombarded with Paniah's voice. Voices all around us that tell us we're of very little value because of whatever. Whatever the cultural expectation that the world holds out there, we hear it talking about us and go, we are of very little value right now because we don't look this way, because we don't have this job because we don't have this bank account, because we don't, whatever it is, fill it in. We are bombarded with the voice of Paniah all day long in the world in which we live. And by the world's standards, we know what it is to feel barren, worthless, jealous, provoked in heart. So how are people going to respond? How does Elkina respond? Look at verse 8. Elkina, her husband, he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? How you understand the, the depth of what he is saying depends greatly on whether or not you're a man or a woman. Sounds funny, but it's true. The male explanation of what happens here has some truth to it. The normal explanation that you will hear is that we obviously know he loves her. The writers told us that. He gives her a double portion. We've seen it. And here, he's trying to communicate to Hannah that he values Hannah for who she is, not in how she can benefit him. Some will say that in his response here, he was trying to rescue Hannah out of the cultural assumptions that would define her worth and her value. He was expressing a tremendously real countercultural love for his wife. Maybe some truth in that. Ask most women how they hear this, and you'll find the response that, at best, that's a little weak and more self centered than we really want to admit. 
If it was truly an expression of his love towards Hannah for who she was and not simply how she benefited him, if he was really just rescuing her out of the trap of these assumptions that she had lived under and the world had put on her, it might have sounded more like, Hannah, you are worth more to me than anything ten sons could ever provide. That's not what he said. He said, am I not worth more to you The truth is probably somewhere in the middle of all of it. And in the bigger picture of what's actually happening, male or female, there's something going on right here that all of us can connect with. There are times when our soul is in provocation like this. Or those that we love whose souls are deep in pain and sorrow. And the first instinct we have is to figure out how to minimize that pain and fill that gap. That's what's happening here with Elkina. He's seen the pain of his wife. He sees it year after year. He knows she feels it day after day. And here she is not even willing to eat because she's so overwhelmed with sorrow. Aren't I enough? Like, how can we just deal with this thing right here? Isn't this relationship right here, isn't enough for you? Friends, we do that all the time in our own hearts. We do it all the time with each other. Yet even an atheist scientist like Ernest Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death, said in that book that there's no human relationship that can bear the burden of godhood. It's in these moments when our, our souls are so provoked, when those that we're with are so provoked, that one of our instincts is to turn to something else. How can we redirect their attention? How can we redirect their sorrow to something else that might fix it? But all of those things are just idols. In and of themselves, they're they're powerless to deliver on anything they seem to promise. Right? As true as Elkina's love may have been for Hannah, there was a greater love than his. And as much as Elkina could be for Hannah, or as much as 10 sons could be for their family, there was one who could do more for her than either of those things ever could. And the writer is about to let us in on a secret. Hannah knew this to be true somewhere in her heart too. Watch what happens. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. If you write in your Bible or write in your journal, circle that, underline it, highlight it, star it, asterisk. This is a major point in the story. Up until this point, Hannah has been passive in the whole thing. Everything has happened to her. Here at this point, Hannah is now acting. And this rising up is is the action of a resolve that has happened in Hannah's heart. She has resolved something and now she is responding to it. And what Hannah does here will not only lead to a change in her life, but it will lead to a change in the future of the nation of Israel and all of redemptive history. Hannah rose. And at the same time, the writer says, Eli, the priest, was sitting. Very important. He was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. 
and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. It's here in this moment in the story, you and I get a glimpse as to who the true spiritual pace setter is in the story. The natural expectation when you read this story is to find the priest the anointed mediator between God and man. He's supposed to be the one that is supposed to be the bastion of faith and hope. Yet here he is, the furthest thing from it. And we'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. In this moment, he can't recognize what's actually happening. And when he accuses her of drunkenness, he's only giving, giving light to the lack of discernment that he actually has. It's just a picture of the spiritual decay going on in the life of God's people because evidently he must have become accustomed to people coming to the tabernacle drunk to look at her and go, oh, that's what this is. But here, here is a barren woman from the hill country accused by some of being out of God's favor, socially disregarded by everyone around her, completely minimized by the response of her husband, disempowered because of her state in life, she is the one whose heart is closest to God. She, not Eli, is the spiritual pace setter in the story. Far from being a worthless woman, that's a very particular phrase because in chapter two, we're going to find out that it's Eli and Hophni and Phinehas that are worthless men because they engage in all manner of destructive and horrible behavior before the Lord. They don't know the Lord, and they engage in destructive acts of worship, and they're called worthless men. The writer says here that she responds, I'm no worthless woman. In the provocation of my heart, in the pain of my heart, in the distress of my life, in all that I'm going through and all that I'm suffering, I'm not engaging in destructive behavior. I'm not denying the reality of who God is in fact, it's this moment right here in the story that Hannah displays a deep and profound faith in the one true God. It's here in this moment in the story that we see a first-rate theologian come onto the scene. It's here at this point in the story that we see that Hannah knew something very specific about who God is and how God responds. Provoked by Paniah, misunderstood by Eli, minimized by her husband, she rose and she poured out her heart to God, to the one that she believed was powerful enough for her. See, when she pours out her heart and says, oh, Lord of hosts, this is the first time in the Bible now anyone is ever going to address God this way. She pours out her heart to the one that she believes is all-powerful and almighty. She pours out her heart to the precise one that she knows she needs right here and right now. She knew something to be true about who God is. And for her, she understood him to be powerful enough 
But even more than that, when you listen to what she said, she also believed this all-powerful one was good enough. Look on the affliction of your servant, she said. She didn't make that up. Hannah was leaning into something she knew to be true about how God acts towards his people. See, back in Exodus chapter three, verse seven, back in the time of God's people suffering under the hand of Egypt before God delivered them out of slavery, God assured Moses that he has certainly seen, he's seen, he's looked at the affliction of his people who are in Egypt, that he had heard their cry. Hannah believes that the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful one to be strong enough, but yet at the same time, she believed the all-powerful one was good enough. And she was asking him to do for her what he's characteristically done for his people throughout history. If you can do that for your people, this is who you've demonstrated yourself to be, you can do that for me. And even more profound to me this week when I thought about it, when I consider the human reality of it, read it like a human. She believed that he was strong enough. At the same time, she believed he was good enough. We always wrestle with those two realities. She believed he was good enough so that the all-powerful commander of hosts would actually hear the cries of a broken-hearted, barren woman from the hill country, that they would actually matter to him and that he'd listen. That is astounding. John Woodhouse calls this the simple logic of true faith. When confronted with the reality of God's sovereignty in our life, sometimes the voices of fatalism can drip in. And we can go, well, if God is sovereign and God is all-powerful, and this is what he's brought into our life, well, okay, sera, sera, let's live with it. We'll just deal with it. And there are other times we come face to face with the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful one at work in our life, and we go, huh, it's not fatalistic. But all of a sudden we go, if this is how he treats those he loves, the voice of resentment begins to set in. If this is what he does to those that he loves, then I want nothing to do with him. But he said in Hannah, we're brought face to face with the logic of true faith. True faith anchors its heart in God's sovereignty and his goodness towards us. True faith leads us, especially, he said, in our distress, to come boldly to the one, the Lord of hosts, who is sovereign over all things. Hannah knew something to be true about God. He was powerful enough. And she knew something to be true about how this all-powerful God acted towards his people, that in his power he was still good. And she poured out her soul to him. And don't miss the fact that even in that, she asked for what it was she wanted. She knew what it was she was asking for, and she asked. Understanding the sovereignty and goodness of God does not negate the fact that God wants us to come to him with what it is we need. And look at what she says. Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Listen to me real quick. Don't get confused. Hannah is not bargaining with God. Hannah is not trying to strike a deal with God. Hannah is not trying to say, if you do this, then I'll do this. Friends, that's how you worship idols, okay? 
If you do this, I'll do this. In return for that, I'll give this. That's not what Hannah was doing at all. Listen to what she actually says and then read it like a human. She said, I will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. She's enacting a Nazarite vow. You find about it in the book of Numbers, consecrating the entirety of his life over to service to the Lord. As one writer says that there is zero doubt that Hannah wishes for this child and asks for this child as a fulfillment of her own deep desire. But beyond and above that desire, there arose in Hannah's soul the sense of God's claim and God's glory. And it was to these high considerations that she desired to subordinate every feeling of her own. If God should give her the child, he would not be hers, but God's. The whole climate of this scene is one of a holy motive, a hallowed desire, and a humble submission. Hannah was literally offering back to God the fullness of all the joys that would have been hers if God were to give her a son. She had lived her life with Elkinah under the weight and the shame of not being able to provide for him a child, recognizing the very real realities like we talked about. No one was going to be able to take care of her when she was older. She was not going to have all those connections and moments with her child or with her son. If God were to give her a child, she would be able to have all of those things. But in this prayer, she's literally giving all of those potential joys back in all their fullness to God. This is an utterly selfless prayer. There's no asking of God to bring vengeance upon Paniah and her behavior. There's no resentment being poured out. It's the expression of an understanding in heart. The Lord of hosts is strong enough. But at the same time, he's good enough. And for Hannah, that was enough for her heart. Eli completely misunderstood at first what was happening. But then he understood. And on the way out, watch what happens. Eli responds to Hannah, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made with him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went on her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. The next morning, Elkina and Hannah got up early to bow in worship before the Lord. Now, nothing that you're anticipating has happened yet, but two things just occurred and that changed everything about what was going on. Hannah had gone in and poured her soul out to the one that she believed was strong enough and good enough. And regardless of how he chose to answer that prayer, something inside of her heart has changed. Communing and pouring out her heart to the Lord has changed something in Hannah. Her joy was no longer dependent on her circumstances changing. We see in Hannah something of her joy. Her joy doesn't mean happy, bouncy all the time. It means a deep, steady trust, even in tears, that God is strong enough and that he is good enough. And that joy and hope in Hannah's heart was now firmly rooted in the Lord of hosts, the one to whom she could pour her soul out to. 
This is the logic, as Woodhouse said, of true faith being worked out. Her hope, her joy were renewed as she remembered the one who was faithful to his people, faithful to his word, all powerful and all good. And she poured out her soul to him and it changed her. However he answered, he was enough. But something else very important happened. And it's going to help us as we understand the story on this side of God's redemptive work. Eli, finally figuring out what's going on, standing before Hannah as the anointed high priest, the mediator between God and his people, he offers a word of blessing and assurance to her. And because of who Eli was, not his character, but the role and the office that God had appointed him to, Hannah heard that blessing as a confirmation that the all-powerful and all-good Lord of hosts had indeed heard her cry. And she walked away. He's enough. The Lord of hosts for Hannah and the hurricane of a storm in her heart was a more sure anchor for her soul than anything her husband or ten sons could provide. As grateful as she may be for any of that. Friends, as you and I read this story, where we are in God's redemptive work, do you realize that we have a more sure anchor for our soul in times of distress and provocation and hurricane of heart than even Hannah did? The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 says that you and I, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has already gone as a forerunner on our behalf. See, you and I reading this story here and now in 2019, we know where the story goes. The all-powerful Lord of hosts came near. He would take on flesh. And in Jesus Christ, you and I have a perfect high priest who is acquainted with our sorrows and with our grief. He himself was rejected. He was tormented. He was provoked. And on the cross, he took in his body the barrenness and the brokenness and the helplessness that our sin had brought upon us. It was on the cross, the gospel writers remind us that he would be forsaken by God so that in the kindness and grace of God towards us through faith in Jesus, you and I would never have to be. You see, it was in his life and in his death and in his resurrection that Jesus Christ dealt with our deepest sense of shame and inadequacy. It's not our bank account. It's not our looks. It's not our jobs. It's not any of those things. Our deepest shame and inadequacy comes from the brokenness of relationship that sin has caused between us and God. And it was the omnipotent Lord of hosts who in his son, in his power and his goodness came near to make right and restore what sin had broken, that we might know that joy. See, we read 1 Samuel chapter 1, just the start of this story, with the panorama view, with the view of God's mercies towards us. We look back on this story through the lens of the cross. And we're reminded that as we deal with and face with the very real barrenness for some biologically and the real barrenness for all of us socially, 
The world's voice is telling us what we have to be, what we're supposed to be, or else we're not worth anything. We're not valued by anything. We look back on the cross, and you and I can face those realities knowing that God is for us. He's not against us. He hasn't abandoned us. He's with us. The cross reminds us that as his children, we are not, never will be forsaken by him. In just a few minutes, we're going to remember the sacrifice that the Lord of hosts who came near made in his body, in our place for our sin. For those who have believed upon him by faith, we're going to receive communion, remembering Jesus' sacrifice, his body broken, his blood shed, the sacrifice he presented once and for all to make us right with God. Before we do that, we're gonna give you a couple of minutes to not just reflect on God's word. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to pour out your heart to him. See, he wasn't just the final and the full sacrifice for us. He continues to this day to be our great high priest. A high priest who, unlike Eli, he doesn't misread us. He doesn't misrepresent us. Rather, he hears our cries. In all power and in all goodness, he hears our cries. And even when we can't find the words, when the tears are flowing, the bitterness is coming, the heart is aching, the groans are occurring, it's his spirit that takes those groans and those tears that we can't even find words for and translates them perfectly for us and lays them confidently at the throne of grace. You and I have a more sure anchor for our souls than Hannah knew then. We have a great high priest in Jesus who speaks a more confident word of comfort to our hearts. This morning, he's the one who says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. Your heavenly father knows what you need. He cares for you. To those burdened of heart, weary of heart, it's the great high priest to which Eli could only imperfectly point towards that looks to you and I and speaks and says, for all who will come to me, just come to me, burdened of heart and heavy of soul, provoked in spirit, come to me. I'll give you rest. It's my peace that I'll give. He's the one that said, I will never forsake you. I was forsaken in your place. I will never forsake you. So we, you and I, on this side of the cross can say confidently with a more sure hope than Hannah could, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man, what can Paniah, what can the voices do to me? We're going to give you a couple of moments to reflect on God's word and to respond to him with your joys, with your sorrows, with your cries. He's strong enough and he's good enough. And then together we're going to respond by receiving communion, remembering his sacrifice in our place for our sins, that before the throne of God above, we have a great and perfect high priest whose name is love, who lives to intercede for you and I, we're going to remember, we're going to celebrate, and they're going to be sent out from here as his people. So take a couple of minutes to reflect, and then we'll respond. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green. 
given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.